0: Well, good morning again, everybody. Hope that your week has gone good, that you've, had, uh, you've enjoyed some of the weather this week. Um, you know, this week has been challenging in, in many different ways for me. I've had quite a few different setbacks this week. I've had a lot of plans that had to change, meetings um, that kind of fell through, which changes my availability had my computer crash in the middle of the week so then I had to start over on some different things Um, you know and then you add on to you just deal with the messiness of life with people you know it's been challenging in a lot of different ways I suppose I also hit a milestone moment this year or for this week I had the nice little added neck pain in there in the middle of the week that lasted through yesterday where the irony is not lost on me. And I'm well aware of God's sense of humor in that as I get older. But you know, it's been a busy week to say the least. And as I've hit this milestone, I I find as people approach those moments in life, they can react in different ways. Some people look forward to those moments in life and they're excited, they're planned for it, they're ready. Other people dread those types of milestones that happen in life. And they don't want them to happen. But you know, for milestones, we have time to prepare. We have time to prepare our hearts and minds for what our reactions are going to be, how we're going to face those things in life. It's when those big moments come out of the blue that you're surprised by, when things change, that I think show your reaction being a little bit more authentic to your personality, to your attitude, to Christ in you at times you know, when you're surprised by things. I mean, show of hands, how many of you would love for a surprise birthday party to be shown or to be given for you? Oh, sorry, Jenny, this is not gonna be a good day for you, then, no. <laughs> teasing. But you know, it's, things can happen very quickly to change our attitudes, to change our mindsets, and we can experience these things in waves, whether it's for the good and you're feeling joy, you're feeling happiness, or whether it's dread and you have fear and anxiety or, or grieving that come in waves. So for many of us, we struggle through life through these changes. Today, we're going to see how Jesus appearing before the disciples will give them a range of emotions as well that they have to process through, while at the same time, seeing how Jesus is grounding them in, with his teaching for their future moving forward. So if you have your Bibles, we're going, to be join, we're going to be close to finishing up the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 24. I'm going to read 36 through 49 today. <clears throat> Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. Father, as we go to your word, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truths, that you would continue to Um, Just pour out your spirit upon us to give us wisdom and understanding in so many things that we go through in life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there are kind of two different sections within this passage, within this reunion. You have the validity of the resurrection being confirmed in many of his disciples. Um, and then Jesus giving kind of final instructions, kind of final teachings for the disciples to be able to make connections to the scriptures, to his teachings, and then some instructions of how to move forward as well. So starting with the appearance of Jesus, starting with confirming and validating the resurrection. This is happening right kind of where we left off last week, in the middle of the, the two witnesses giving their testimony, I would imagine. Um, you know, Jesus just kind of appears among them, very similar to when they were on the road to Emmaus. Jesus kind of joins them on the conversation, just asks, what are you talking about? Here he just appears in the room with them and gives this normal common greeting of peace to you, where he is desiring peace. He's desiring the peace of God, the shalom of God, to be among his friends. And I love how obvious the reaction is here. They're startled, they're frightened, they jump because they wouldn't be expecting this. You know, have you ever had moments like that where you are listening to someone speak and you're so engrossed with what they're saying that you don't see somebody come up right beside you until they're they're done speaking, you take a breath, and you're like, oh, when did you get here? You know, we have these types of moments that make us startled, that make us jump. And, you know, another fun little fact that I enjoyed... Is just how Luke writes his book you know he is very matter-of-fact he's very evidence type based and he uses bookends I've described this before you know as he is closing this book it's like another bookend because you think of how the book of Luke opens it it opens with angels visiting Zachariah and Mary startling them frightening them and now here he is appearing before the disciples in a similar way and they, they respond like they think that they have just seen a spirit. Or how you would say, I, I just saw a ghost type of thinking. Right? It's a very practical way to respond in how Jesus is appearing. The other thing that we have to remember is the other gospels give us some more information, some more details. More often than not, the disciples are behind locked doors. John describes this out of fear of being arrested, of being crucified or persecuted, just like Jesus was. So they're behind locked doors, and yet here is Jesus right there in front of them. He appears like a ghost, but with a physical body. You know, we can't really describe how this happens other than the term unbelievable. It seems too good to be true. It seems hard to believe. How can this happen? And we begin to start thinking and rationalizing in our minds. It's something that would startle us, frighten us, make us jump. And you would doubt the validity of it a little bit. Is this really happening? Can this be real? You know, how would you respond if a loved one who has passed away appeared in front of you? Would you believe that it's real? You know, I've had dreams in the last few years dreams of elaine where in the dream i can recognize that i'm dreaming where i know that it's a dream that it isn't reality sometimes it can definitely be cruel to come to that realization and you struggle even knowing that it's a dream and the pain that comes but you still want to engage because you enjoy those moments that you have where you realize it is too good to be true. But here is Jesus, here before them, who had just died. And he asks, why are you struggling? Why are you doubting? Why don't you believe? I'm right here in front of you. And again, when we rationally think about this, yeah, why wouldn't we believe it, right? You see, the supernatural goes beyond our natural senses and minds and what they can understand. The only reasoning that we come up with is mystery and the supernatural. It's beyond what we can understand. But Jesus lays it out. He says, use your senses. I am real. I am in front of you. Touch my scars. Touch my hands and feet. See and understand that it is really me. He has a new body a glorified body, very similar to the physical bodies that we have now. But also notice the emphasis that he puts. It is I, myself. You know, in, in my vernacular, it's similar to like, don't worry everybody, it's me. I'm here in the flesh. You know, literally. But you know, with, with Jesus, it's very similar in the construction to Yahweh. I am who I am, talking about the essence of God, to just be. It is Jesus. I am real. I am alive. I am in front of you. It is me. He has this new body. He is before the eyes of the disciples. And, and you know, especially with Thomas and the doubting, he, he, they're able to feel his hands and, and his feet. They're able to use their senses to confirm that. Is that going to be enough proof for them, for these disciples? Is that enough proof for the world? Because you see, the resurrection in and of itself, Jesus being there in the flesh, would fly in the face of the common teachings, the common beliefs of the day that were ruled by, you know, your Greek philosophers. Your Greek philosophy would teach that the body and the evil desires or the desires that are of the body are all evil, whereas your soul and your mind are good. So they view death as a way for your soul and mind to escape the bondage from the evil body, basically. And it was a pervasive thought, you know, because it, it was a thought that would challenge what the church is going to be bringing about. And you think of the, the Sadducees. They did not believe in a bodily re- resurrection, so you had a group even within the, the Jewish community that was being influenced by the common teachings of the culture. Can we begin to make some parallels within the church and what the culture is instilling into the teachings of the church? History seems to be similar. But the physical appearance of Jesus is confirmed to the disciples that the resurrection of the body is real. And it would cause ripple effects. It would cause problems for this culture and for this society for years. People would be tested with this unbelievable claim of the resurrection. It's a decision that has been the same throughout history. Do we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Now, the evidence surrounding the resurrection and the events around it are staggering. There's multiple witnesses that saw the body of Jesus. Of course, that was all disputed by the Jewish leaders, by the Roman officials, who said that it wasn't real. That could have easily been verified if they could produce the body of Jesus, which they couldn't. But then you also have another difficult thing to say if the resurrection is a myth, why is it that so many followers of Jesus very early on would go through the torture, would go through the imprisonments, the beatings, the ostracizing, the, the being fed to lions, being put in the gladiator arenas? if all of this was a lie, if all of this was made up? There's something supernatural surrounding this event something that is difficult for people to believe with skeptical and cynical minds. But as they are seeing Jesus, as they are touching the physical body, their reaction is disbelieving out of joy. Again, emphasizing how how this really is too good to be true. They are marveling with joy as Jesus is standing there before them someone who was dead, who was in the grave for three days, alive and well. Now, Jesus is gonna get to this significance here in a moment, but I just want us to sit in this thought of disbelieving in joy, this thought of marveling at God, because I don't think that we marvel enough, because we live in a fast-paced world where we're always on the go. There's always meetings. There's always things to do. We're working so many hours during the week. How often are we sitting and just marveling at God? How often are we just sitting in joy with our Savior? Again, trying to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes in this moment. I'm sure that there's a range of thoughts and emotions going through their minds, a mixture of trying to figure out and process all of the supernatural and how Jesus is really in front of them to the thoughts that they have in the beginning of Acts. Okay, now, Jesus, now is it time for you to restore your, your kingdom? To the thoughts of just simply having joy at seeing their master again. You know, the disciples were with Jesus for three years. They were close to one another. It's not three years one day a week. It's three years living life together each and every day. They were close to one another. And the last time that they saw Jesus, he was either being arrested to be taken away, to be crucified, or from a distance, they saw him die, thinking, that's it, permanence. I'm not gonna see him again. And yet he is standing there before them. They see their master. They are reunited. And you know, when we think about this verse... When we think about this idea of something that seems too good to be true, can we think of those things in our life? How about salvation? Is that not the definition of something being so good that we can only marvel at it? That we think that this is too good to be true. The fact that we were dead because of our sin and brought back to life by Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection. How joyous of a thing is that to dwell on? And in their joy, Jesus lays out understanding. He lays out teaching for the disciples. And I think that this is in, in similar ways to the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus as he is conne- making these connections in Scripture. Scripture. He gives the certainty of Scripture for their benefit, that all of Scripture needed to be fulfilled, not the part, including the parts that they missed, not just the parts that they wanted to be true, as we talked about last week. He needed to suffer. He needed to die in order to atone for the sins of the world. You know, and, and we can make connections with what he is teaching here. We can make connections to the suffering, as we just read about it in Luke And then point back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant passage. This is the third day, as he says, that he will rise on the third day. It's still the third day. It's in the evening. And he has risen before them. It's before their eyes. So we can see how this statement of teaching here in verse 46 is kind of playing out. Now look at verse 47. We see some technical terms in here that have kind of been covered throughout Luke. Luke. Terms, concepts that are, are brought up in the Old Testament and that will be continue to be carried on into the early church as well. And what we see here with, within this verse is a summary of the gospel message when you connect it with verse 46, obviously. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is what Jesus went to the cross for. Repentance. Repentance means change. In the New Testament, it's usually anchored with a change of our thinking. But you know, true repentance, um, it it involves faith. It receives the gracious forgiveness that God continually offers all of us in Christ. Early in his ministry, Jesus' own messages expressed very similar things. You know, he he was like John the Baptist, and he would preach a message that said, repent for the kingdom of God is near, in Matthew chapter 4. His mission, his ministry here on earth, focused on calling sinners to repentance. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That calling is kind of clarified a little bit in, in Mark 1.15 where he says, repent and believe the good news. See, repentance is tied to the gospel message. If it's not, then it falls short of the full but biblical message. You know, repentance is not simply just changing our minds in different matters in life. When we add faith into this concept, then we're understanding that we're turning from our own ideas, our own selfishness, our own thoughts of saving ourselves or thinking that we're a good person to the understanding of God's plan for salvation, God's design for that. Where we're changing our minds from focusing on ourselves to focusing on God. And Jesus makes this idea of repentance very clear in Luke 13. He simply says, repent or perish. Those are your two options. There's no middle area, there's no well maybe this or maybe that. There's no there's nothing gray in that. It's repent or perish. You cannot rely on yourself for salvation because you have fallen short of the standard that God requires, the standard of perfection. None of us are perfect. We have all fallen due to our sin, due to to our transgression against God. We have broken His law and we are guilty and deserving of a punishment. That punishment, as the Bible tells us, is death. We have broken His holy law. We deserve death, an eternal separation. From God. But Jesus offers us forgiveness from our sins. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is wiping out of an offense from memory. It can only be done by the affronted person. In this context, our understanding goes to divine forgiveness, where it is the removal of sin and its consequences. Psalm 103 says, God forgives all of our iniquity. He casts it as far as the east is from the west. Divine forgiveness is dependent upon the loving nature of God, where his justice has been served or satisfied through Jesus, through the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And, you know, this isn't a universalist type of thing. You know, while it is offered to all, the pardon is not given to all because there's different obstacles, there's different barriers in people's lives. You have the Bible reflecting on stubbornness, unrepentant hearts, unbelief, denial of wrongdoing, not forgiving others, as it says in Matthew 6. You know, within Luke, this this idea of forgiveness of sins is usually synonymous with salvation. We think of you're forgiven and you connect that to you're saved. His death, his resurrection has paid the price to forgive our sins, to justify us. And the most common passage to understand that is found in Romans 3. And again, a lot of technical or big terms within that. And I suggest this week maybe just sitting with some of these terms, unpacking it. Because what I really found this week is I'm trying to study more of the resurrection and just the unbelievable nature of it so many times we try to come up with words to describe the nature of God, and they just fall short. So that when you're just reading over it during the Sunday service, you don't get that full impact unless you, you know, take that time to dive in to what these words truly mean. Because, you know, we see it today. What a word is defined as today is completely different to what they defined it as 50 years ago as well. So we want to grow in those types of understandings. But in Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, again, describing what Jesus has done. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a wonderful passage. It really lays out what we believe in our faith. And you know, when we think about repentance and forgiveness, I think part of the ideas of repentance also involve the change in our mind when it comes to understanding sin, to understand our desperate need to be forgiven to understand what sin truly is in all of its ugliness. Actions that have separated us from the Father until salvation. But even now as believers, sin, which has been a part of our whole life, is now packaged with remorse, with guilt, with our understandings of forgiveness. And we're caught in this Romans 7 type of mentality Or I I don't do what I should do and I I do what I don't want to do and you kind of go back and forth and you you wonder about forgiveness. We face the guilt of doing something wrong now and then we mix it with this process of still trying to hide from our sin, try to cover it up so that we don't look so bad rather than stepping in and understanding forgiveness fully. See, sin has kept us Many times in perpetual states of feeling guilty. Of being unworthy. And you have these roots that dig down and build strongholds in your life that the enemy can use. Strongholds of unworthiness that tell you that you can't be forgiven. And that's a tough attack to, be, to face. And it's not until we come to that full understanding of the forgiveness offered by Christ that we can break through that. A forgiveness that seems too good to be true. Because what does the enemy say? Oh, you can't be forgiven. You've done something too terrible. They won't love you anymore if they know this. I'm in the middle of these types of thoughts, of these types of attacks, we can experience and encounter God's love, even though we were his enemies his steadfast love that defies logic, that defies reasoning. And it brings disbelieving tears of joy. You know, you think about it, in your life, if or when you find a person that loves you despite your faults, that loves you despite of the bad things that you have done, that loves you, um, you know, despite how you see yourself, when you experience that type of love, you go to bat for that person because they love you at your worst. You're ready to move mountains for that person. We were all enemies of God, and yet God still loved us. He has seen our worst, and he still loves us. We have to repent in our understanding of how we're treating sin and how we're letting it still have a foothold in our life. Jesus then says that this message should be proclaimed to all the nations in his name. You know, understanding what has been done for you in a deep and personal way, as we talked about last week, causes us to go. It causes us to shout on the hilltops the praises and glory to God. To God who would send his son to take on the punishment that I deserve. And this is to be done in the name of Jesus because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, the disciples, they were witnesses to everything that Jesus has done. They are to go because of this. We are called in the great commission to to make disciples as we are going, to evangelize, to spread the good news of the gospel message. If we are saved, we have a witness. We have a testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives. I can't tell you how often it's been that I have shared a gospel message and it has fallen on deaf ears. But there are times when I'm beginning to share my testimony where I'm sharing my witness of what God is doing in my life. And it breaks down those barriers that I had talked about in terms of unbelief, in terms of stubbornness. It breaks down those barriers and there's a connection of hope. Like, wait, you've gone through this and yet this is how you're responding? What is that about? What is this hope that is in you? Why are you so joyful in your grief? And you're then able to plant seeds to share the gospel message. The gift of discernment has been so important in my journey. Where I'm able to understand what to share, when to share, how to share different things. Where God is leading me to talk to different people. Jesus is to be on our lips as we are salt and light for him. Seasoning the conversations that we are a part of. In in whatever way we can. It's not always going to be a cut and dry, this is a scripted gospel message. But it's natural, it's authentic because Christ is in you and he is alive and well and that's who you are now. He becomes a part of you. His word is a part of you. That is what is coming out. We are to proclaim his name and the gospel message to the nations. But one last important thing that Jesus mentions here is the promise that is given from the Father, the Holy Spirit. He will come and he will clothe them with power from on high. Is the Holy Spirit powerful? Is he God? Many times... Churches treat the Holy Spirit like a third wheel, the ugly stepchild. We don't treat him powerful. We don't treat him as God. We have such a low view of the Holy Spirit. We contain him. We relegate what the Holy Spirit can and cannot do. The Bible tells us don't quench the Holy Spirit, which means we can quench the Holy Spirit. We're guilty of that. We see the ministry of the Holy Spirit being described by Jesus in John 14 and 16. The Spirit is further described by Paul in many places. We're going to be looking at some of those coming up in the next series. But the Spirit closed them with power, power to go and be his witnesses, power to speak the truth in love, power to love their neighbors, to love God over all of the other things in this world, and power to confirm the truth of the word with acts and miracles. The resurrection and the resurrection people are to be supernatural. Now when we think of the term supernatural, our culture has infused in our minds through Hollywood that that must mean lasers need to shoot out of of our eyes. When it could be supernatural to love my neighbor whose dog continues to poop in my yard It could be supernatural to be able to take that next step of faith in that trial or hardship that you're going. When you don't have the strength, when you don't have the reasoning, when you don't have the understanding, but you trust in God. It could be supernatural to rely on the power of God in every aspect of our lives. Well, we're not relying on our own strength, but rather being clothed in the power of the Spirit, the power of God to live our lives for him in a joy that is difficult to believe. It has been said many times, Christians should be the most joyful people in the world because we understand what we've been saved from and what we're saved unto. The resurrection of Jesus should bring a joy to our lives that is contagious, that is noticeable to the world around us. A joy where we are living in reality because the reality is that Jesus is alive, that he is the King, and that his spirit dwells in each one of us. He resides, he abides with us as we abide with him. As believers, we are grounded in the Word, firmly rooted in all of the Word, not just our favorite passages. We're grounded in the word so that there will be nothing else taking that spot. No other idols, no other attacks for the enemy to build strongholds in our life. To make us ineffective towards advancing the gospel message. Because we have to be all in in order to proclaim his name to the nations. All of Jesus for all of the world. That is our mission, that is our goal. That is how we as disciples are to move forward. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to think on your resurrection, as we think upon your salvation today, Lord, it is truly such an unbelievable thing. It defies our own human reasoning and logic. For once it, it shuts us up to so where we don't have to have the answers. We just have to have the faith, to trust in you and to believe. Lord help us to, to know you more. Help us to encounter you in ways that that we haven't in the past because maybe there's been some strongholds in our lives or there's been some barriers to certain beliefs. Lord, we're aware that there's, there's so many different pockets of belief within this body alone, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Lord, help us to have a love and a passion for your word that dives deeper. because as we dive deeper, we dive deeper into you, to your nature, to your essence. And that needs to be lived out in our lives. I pray for strength for this upcoming week that we may live a life that is full of joy where the childlike faith within us shines brightly for all to see. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Will you please stand for our last song?